Open up your Bibles to Genesis chapter 31. Lord willing, we will conclude this chapter with this outline. I'd, I'd like to think we'll conclude it tonight. Uh, we got a pretty good chance of doing so. We're going to start in verse 17. And really, we've just got a lot of highlighted facts to cover with what remains. Uh, this outline is entitled, Jacob Departs for Canaan. And, and we see the, the drama that unfolds based on the turned countenance of Laban from last time. And we really kind of see these things play out. So we're just going to take one section of, uh, of verses at a time as we go through the remainder of this outline. So we'll start in verse 17 and read to verse 24. Then Jacob rose up and set his sons and his wives upon camels, and he carried away all his cattle and all his goods which he had gotten, the cattle of his getting which he had gotten in Padanaram, for to go to Isaac his father in the land of Canaan. And Laban went to shear his sheep, and Rachel had stolen the, the images that were her father's. And Jacob stole away unawares to Laban the Syrian, in that he told him not that he had fled. So this stole here for Jacob is more of a sneaking away uh, without Laban uh, being made aware of his departure. So he fled with all that he had, and he rose up and passed over the river. This would have been likely the river Euphrates, and set his face toward Mount Gilead, and it was told Laban on the third day that Jacob was fled. And he took his brethren with him and pursued after him seven days' journey. And they overtook him in Mount Gilead. And God came to Laban the Syrian in a dream by night and said unto him, Take heed that thou speak not to Jacob, either good or bad. Let us have a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, Lord, I pray, Lord, that you'd remove distractions uh, from our hearts and minds, Lord, that we be... Uh, able to pay attention and to be fed of your word this evening, Lord. Equip us and strengthen us, Father. Uh, be with those who aren't with us tonight, whatever the concerns might be, Lord, that they be back with us at the next appointed time. Uh, be with those who take advantage of the streaming services and the things of that nature, Lord, that it might be a blessing unto them and not a curse. And Lord, we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Instead of trusting God to protect him, uh, it seems Jacob snuck away in haste, and I know there'll be uh, reason for alarm the way I'm phrasing that, and we'll, we'll get to that in a moment, but uh, Jacob's tendency to sneak away or to sneak this or that is, is still there. That old man is still there. And he does this while Laban is away shearing sheep, and we'll talk about this a little bit uh, more as we go through, through this outline, but there also would have likely been a ceremony or a series of festivities that went along with this sheep shearing time. So Laban's not just out performing some chore, uh, he's actually partaking in some type of festival uh, of sorts, if you will, when Jacob takes the time to leave. What a poor testimony when believers choose to act in secrecy it is not a greater testimony for us to, or rather, is it not a greater testimony for us to openly beseech the Lord and celebrate his continued care and mercy toward us? Uh, the reason I go this route with my description is because we are to be lights unfiltered, cities set upon a hill. We aren't to live lives in which there's something to hide. Now, there'll always be something we're inclined to hide because we continue to fall into temptation. But when we're following the directions of the Lord, which we know Jacob was told earlier in this chapter to do exactly what he's doing, but to do it in the manner that he's doing it isn't giving glory to God. And that's the concern that I have. 
Now, as we take a break, just for a minute from Jacob's timetable as he's rushing off, I want us to be reminded that he's most affirmatively on God's timetable. Nothing here is out of place. Nothing here will uh, be permitted to happen that God hasn't allowed for. He had received a blessing from his father Isaac that gave him patriarchal responsibilities associated with that promise. He possessed both the birthright and the blessing. He had responsibilities back home that he had neglected for the last 20 years. They entailed great responsibilities, great privileges, and it's now time to fulfill these things. It's now time to come back to what God had called for him to be involved with. And before we move forward, we ought to also take a, a quick glance back at one part of a verse that seems the writer sneaks by pretty quickly. Rachel had stolen the images that were her father's. This will become a big deal as we go towards the conclusion of this chapter. And I just want to point out that the word for images here is teraphim which references small idol figurines that would have been used in divination and as household deities that were supposed to be a luck bringer. Uh, so before we think oh, Laban would have such a thing, uh, you might want to remove the rabbit's foot from your keychain or the lucky charm from your rearview mirror because it would have been something similar to that. And those are idols. Uh, the very concept of luck and good fortune, that's not what Christians hearken unto. So Rachel stole her father's idol images. I pray we don't have these things in our homes. I pray, uh, it was a few weeks back, lightning had struck the, the Christ statue again down in Rio, and, and everybody seemingly is losing their minds again that lightning could strike such a thing. God didn't give direction for such a thing to exist. Rome, once again, has taken it upon itself to create yet one more idol for the folks to look up to. This isn't the first time it's been struck. I, there's a place in Ohio, I think outside of Cincinnati, if I remember right, where there's something very similar that's also been struck. Does God not ordain and direct the lightning itself? The storms that blow through here, usually every Wednesday at 7 o'clock, is God not behind such things? Be careful, beloved, what idols you put into your hearts and lives. What permissions you give yourselves to be religious and what those rely upon. And I, I pray that'll make sense as we go through. We're not to idolize people. We're not to idolize statues, trinkets, rabbit's feet, and so on. Rachel seems to have some type of faith in Jehovah, as we saw at the conclusion of last, uh, our last outline, but she's reluctant to get, let go of the worldly safety nest that she'd been brought up with. Uh, it's the worldly traditions of man that put her in the situation she's in, her and her sister being wives to the same man. And like Lot's wife, as the Lord was leading her family in one direction, she was found looking back and longing to take a little bit of it with her. This old man nature, ladies, applies to women as well as men. We have to be done with such things. And note as we proceed just how much deceit goes into keeping her grip on what she has stolen. Uh, and, and if you know this chapter well, you know it's, it's fairly obvious. Uh, she makes a liar out of her husband before this chapter is over. Uh, she's covering this sin with her, with seemingly her own garment, her own skirt, as she sits upon the camel towards the end of the chapter. That this is the way deceit works. Uh, that tangled web we weave that uh, that we speak of. As, as we get started, it has to keep going because if it doesn't keep going, it unfolds. It comes apart at the seams. 
Truth sets you free. We fear, we fear what will happen when the lies are told, when the lies are revealed. But it is that truth that sets us free. It is that truth that shows what we should have truly been relying upon all along, that being God the Father. Now their destination here is Mount Gilead. It was a mountainous region east of the Jordan River. Its northern edges are nearly 300 miles from Haran, Haran being where Laban and his heritage is from, where Abraham had originated. So it gives us an idea just about how far uh, Jacob has already run to. Uh, according to Genesis 30, 36, uh, Laban was three days' journey from Jacob, and he set three days' journey betwixt himself and Jacob, and Jacob fed the rest of the flocks. This is what we saw at the conclusion of that last arrangement they made where Jacob said he'd take the spotted and, and the speckled and so on and so forth. That to keep them separate, there was already a three-day separation between them. We also see from our text that Laban wasn't even told of Jacob's departure for another three days. So there's, there's a week or more distance between where Laban is and where Jacob has now arrived to, which is going to be important in a minute. Plus, Jacob is driving uh, cattle. He's driving livestock. He's driving his family, his servants. There's a lot of difference between what he's moving with and what Laban is going to move with uh, when he intends to catch up with him. Uh, it should also be noted the sheep shearing, as I mentioned before, is typically accompanied by festivals. Like it was an annual event, kind of like a harvest thing or a springtime thing that we see around here. Uh, it would have been a sufficient distraction for Laban while Jacob tried to make his departure for sure. Now, for an offense like this, with what Jacob has essentially done to Laban, uh, is very likely, because Laban's countenance has already turned against Jacob, as we saw last time, that Jacob would have... Uh, been known as a dead man. I mean, Laban in his in his statute status and his situation, his his kids, his grandkids being taken away, uh, they're sneaking away in the night. Uh, Laban likely would have wanted to have Jacob's head for this. He's already losing a great servant and a great employee and a profitable employee at that. But for everything else that would be counted lost, this would have been a very precarious situation. How did Jacob leave Canaan? Do we remember that? 20 years before this, uh, he left Canaan because Esau wanted to kill him. And Esau's his brother. We see some commonalities in Jacob. After 20 years' time, uh, he tends to leave people behind that want him dead. And that's who this Jacob is. But there's an intervention here on God's part as he speaks to Laban through a vision. Take heed that thou speak not to Jacob, either good or bad. That's, the, that's what we see there in verse 20. Proverbs 16, verse 7 says, When a man's ways please the Lord, he maketh even his enemies to be at peace with him. The, the, the confusion, the riddle of how could God love one as Jacob is still pretty strong. Our flesh should wrestle with trying to make sense of this because it's not meant for our flesh to make sense of. God loved one and hated the other. And it's almost as though Jacob is taking painstaking efforts to illustrate for us that he is not redeemable, that he is a, a thief's sneak, that he might know how to work, and he might know how to be profitable in the fields. He might have no reason to be dishonest at times. And, and every time we've seen him dishonest so far, he really didn't have good reason because God had already made promises, and yet he tended to go that way. If you're here tonight and you're honest with yourself, isn't that how it is for us as well? Don't we try to take shortcuts when we really don't need to? Don't we try to shortcut our own patience most of the time? 
When God has made promises to his people, he's, he's given commands to his people, and how often do we say, but, but it doesn't really have to be that hard, but it really doesn't have to go that way, but we could do it a completely different way. Some examples, Sarah says, you could just have a baby with my handmaid. Rachel says the same thing. Leah says the same thing. Rebecca says, you should just go ahead and do this thing. Pretend you're Esau and get the blessing from your father. It's what God had already promised, but he needs our help. Beloved, I pray that when we, that we're starting to see a true picture of just how much help God actually needs from us. He craves obedience. He craves those who believe to be faithful unto him. Not because they have anything to offer, but quite simply because God said so. He is holy, and we're not. He is righteous and all-knowing, and we are not. We've got a lot of ideas of ways things can be done, and he knows exactly how things should be done. There's a great difference. Look at the next portion of text here. We're going to start in verse 25 and read to verse 35. Then Laban overtook Jacob. And remember, God had spoken to Laban about not harming him, not even speaking good or bad unto him. Now Jacob had pitched his tent in the mount, and Laban with his brethren pitched in the mount of Gilead. And Laban said to Jacob, What hast thou done, that thou hast stolen away unawares to me, carried my daughters as captives, taken with the sword? Wherefore didst thou flee away secretly, and steal away from me? And didst not tell me that I might have sent thee away with myrrh, and with songs, with tabret, and with harp? Doesn't that sound just like Laban? I mean, he was known for that, right? His charitableness unto Jacob and unto others. Certainly, this sounds like something he would have done. Throw a party for his best servant leaving, taking a great deal of his own livestock that he's earned honestly, actually, but also taking his wives never to return. No, this isn't true to Laban's character at all. Then he goes on, And hast not suffered me to kiss my sons and my daughters? Thou hast now done foolishly in, doing, in so doing. It is in the power of my hand to do you hurt. But the God of your father spake unto me yesternight, saying, Take thou heed that thou speak not to Jacob, either good or bad. And now, though thou wouldest needs be gone, because thou, because thou sore longest after thy father's house, Yet wherefore hast thou stolen my gods? Now we're getting to the heart of the matter. And honestly, as I studied through this, I, I kind of wondered of Laban's character. Was he so hot and pressing so hard to catch him because of any of these other things he mentioned? Or was it really all about those idols? I think it's a fair question. Because we establish some idols in our own lives that are so precious unto us that sometimes we're not desperate so much that other people have them, but it's that they might reveal them. That light might touch that thing that we've kept secret for so long. I wonder, did Laban truly miss his daughters and his grandkids? Was he truly desirous to, that, to just scold his son-in-law here? Or was he legitimately ticked that his idols had been taken away from him? We look at the language that Jacob scribes for us here. Laban is continually saying, stolen, flee away secretly, taken away, didn't tell me, done foolishly. These are very derogatory remarks for someone he had intended to throw a party for, if he'd have been honest. 
Something to consider. Jacob answered and said to Laban, Because I was afraid. For I said, Peradventure thou wouldest take by force thy daughters from me. Now this is more likely what Laban would have done. With whomsoever thou findest thy gods, let him not live. Before our brethren discern thou... It's interesting we find that word in our Wednesday night study. Discern thou what is thine with me, and take it to thee. For Jacob knew not that Rachel had stolen them. And Laban went into Jacob's tent, into Leah's tent, and into the two maidservants' tents, but he found them not. Then he went out of Leah's tent and entered into Rachel's tent. Now Rachel had taken the images and put them in the camel's furniture and sat upon them. These are likely a type of saddlebag or something that the camels would have carried. And Laban searched all the tent, but found them not. And she said to her father, Let it not displease my Lord that I cannot rise up before thee, for the custom of women is upon me. And he searched, but found not the images. Warren Wearsby wrote that Laban put on a front. And you see that in the phrase, some of the phrases, but one in particular, has not suffered me to kiss my sons and my daughters. I mean, he's pleading with, with uh, playing the heartstrings of Jacob and pleading with him, insisting that he'd been wronged. And it made it look as though he was offended, Wearsby says, when he was probably glad to be rid of the man who was outsmarting him, getting richer by the day. No doubt the entire party was aware that this was a ruse. Given the lead Jacob's caravan would have had on Laban, the fact that he caught them so quickly indicates just how hard and fierce he pushed to get there. Would this man who took advantage of Jacob for so long truly have thrown a party over them leaving? I don't think it takes Warren Wearsby to tell us that that is uh, a false act that Laban is putting on here, but it's an interesting uh, assessment of the situation. Laban then felt it necessary to teach us a lesson on God's patience. If we pay attention here, uh, the vision was clear that Laban was to not touch or speak good or ill to Jacob, and yet he still found it necessary to remind Jacob that it was in his power. It was in the power of his hand to cause hurt unto Jacob. And that's just like a bully in the schoolyard. Enjoy that lunch, Muddy, because I have the power to take it from you at any time. If not for your God, which I, I don't know, I, I have to try and imagine how Jacob would have received this. Uh, if the Lord saw him sneaking away the way I presented it tonight, then maybe Jacob's hearing similarly to how Abraham had heard back with Abimelech back in the day, that the Lord gave a vision to what was presumably his enemy. Was most definitely a heathen, a non-believer, receiving a vision of his God. One that we just saw last Wednesday, he's now acknowledging to be the God of Abraham, the God of his father Isaac, and his God too. And a vision was given to Laban. I think that's significant because in the next portion of text that we get to, Jacob kind of snaps a little bit. Uh, at 20 years of what he's gone through so far, working for both wives and so on and so forth, with what he went through before leaving Canaan, and probably because he's human like we are, the emotions of going back and facing Esau after so long and not knowing what he's going to find there. And we've mentioned over and over again, he's not heard from his mother, Rebecca, in quite some time. We don't know the last time he's heard from Isaac. There's Commentators believe there's a point in the last couple chapters where he may have gotten an update from his dad. But 20 years, that's a long time, and a lot has taken place for Jacob here. Laban teaches us God's patience and that he was 
not immediately struck down. Laban didn't put on a school, school lesson for us on patience, but we see the long suffering of God in that Jacob, or, or Laban rather, does kind of speak evil to Jacob. He stretches a muscle God told him not to. He's lucky he wasn't consumed by the fire of God's wrath right here and there. But then teaches Jacob of God's preservation in revealing that a vision had occurred, which I think is the intent. I think, I believe that that's why the Lord allowed for this to happen and didn't strike him down immediately. He wanted his servant, he wanted Jacob to hear that he was still very much involved and that Jacob was preserved by his own hand. Think of the instruction this would have been for Jacob to find out that it's not your strength. It wasn't your speed that ran 300 miles in this time, uh, space of time that was going to enable you to escape. It was God. And God had his hand on this whole situation. And again, in verse 30, we see Laban's real concern. Someone had stolen his idols. I, uh, I remember, and John's here, he'd, he'd remember the name, so I won't mention it, but... Um, before John was born, I, I visited probably every babysitter in Bell Fountain because our folks worked six days a week most of our lives. Um, bad babysitters. I mean, I was OD'd on Pepto-Bismol when I was really, really young. Jumped off a bed into a mirror. That's how I got the scratch you asked about two years ago. Uh, just bad experiences. But one, uh, his parents owned a nursery pretty close to the house. Uh, they used to drop me off there so I could get on the bus, and his mom came out and, and put out a bunch of McDonald's toys back when Muppet Babies was a show, for those old enough to know what that is. Um, and he was still asleep, and she laid all these things out, so I was sitting on the floor playing with him, and he comes bearing out of his room. Those are my toys! Flies into the center of the room. He was really good at soccer. I mean, I played against him a lot back in the day. And kicked his own toys across the room until they shattered onto the wall. It was better for him that these precious items be destroyed than another hold them. I give you this illustration because that's the fierceness that I hear in Laban's words here. Uh, he gives this giant lecture to Jacob, knowing himself he can't harm Jacob. And then when he gets to the point of verse 30, you stole my toys. You stole toys you weren't even supposed to know I had. And they're most precious. And I put yourself there. You got a lucky pin, and every time you use that lucky pin, gold falls from the sky. Whatever you think fortune and luck is, this pin brings it. And somebody takes this pin. Oh, it's going to be the end of you. It's going to undo you because this has become a little G-God for you. This has become an idol. These images, these figurines to Laban were most precious. So precious, in fact, he hesitates not to search his daughter's tents, his son-in-law's tent, and, and Isaac, except for sneaking away here, and maybe the idea that he had tricked Laban with the, with the cattle, though I don't think that's the case, had been very honest with Laban for years and abused by Laban for years. And even here, Jacob doesn't believe those idols are there. And he says, search everything. If you find it, that person doesn't even, they don't even need to live, he says. Take their life from them if you find these idols with any of my people. Think of the situation Rachel's put her husband in here. And he doesn't know a thing about it. Unaddressed sin in the home, ladies or gentlemen, just because your children and your spouses don't know about it doesn't mean that when God has for it to be revealed, you won't all suffer. 
or that you won't all suffer until it's revealed and repented of. An entire family stoned on Joshua's watch because something was taken that shouldn't have been taken. The entire family, from the man who did it all the way to the grandbabies. Sin is a big deal. Okay, I, I know in today's America, we don't present it in such a way. Believe me, every ugly, nasty sin revealed and unrevealed for America and her people, there will be burning hellfire. There will be intense wrath of God himself for all of it. All of it. We must repent. This hidden sin led to more sin as Rachel the thief lied to her father, lies to her husband, angry Laban examined everything in the caravan, consider the position again that her little sin has put her, her husband, her children, and her father in. What if one of the children found those idols before she got a hold of them and hit them again? And Grandpa Laban finds them. Would Jacob have had to keep his word? Would Laban had enforced that word? Oh, that, that's crossing a line, preacher. That would have never happened. This was Laban's God. These were his idols. You think for a second he would have allowed anyone to come between him and those idols? You think for a second that anyone will come between you and your idols without invoking a little of your wrath? This is one of the greatest reasons we ought not have them. There is no place in us for us to have idols. That seat belongs to God. Jacob was ignorant of the fact that she took them. And believing to be innocent, he told Laban he could take whatever was his back if he found it. He could punish as he saw fit anyone who had his stuff. Notice how Jacob's entire caravan was to be an open book to the accuser. This is a good picture. No hidden sin is permitted in our lives. And Satan combs over our witness. Believe it, beloved. He combs over our witness continually, seeking a way in which we can be consumed. Peter says in 1 Peter 5, 8, Be sober, be vigilant, therefore, because your adversary the devil, as a roaring lion, walketh about seeking whom he may devour. That's your enemy. That's the accuser, the deceiver. That's the devil himself. Everything you think you've hid and hid real well, he's combing over every ounce of your testimony and stands before the throne and says, this one's guilty. This one will forsake you. This one will not have faith. If we turn the heat up just a little bit, go read Job. We read Laban going through every tent, Jacob's as well as his wives. And in the next few verses, Jacob confirms that Laban searched through everything. What humility for Jacob, the leader of this caravan, the leader of this household, these servants and the everything, to stand like an open book, fully revealed before the deceiver, before the, uh, the accuser here, his enemy. Can we do that? Can you this night say, search me, Satan? I have full faith in God and nothing to hide. 
The accusers of that, of that adulterous woman two weeks ago that we talked about, they couldn't. They departed. I mean, they had her where they wanted her, did they not? Likely nude or partially covered, caught in the middle of the act, before the judge himself. I mean, this is an open and shut case. And Jesus said he, he was guiltless. He who can cast the first stone. None could. Could we? Could we stand before our accuser and truly confess Jesus Christ and that no sin is hidden and that we've repented of all that we're made aware of through the scriptures, through our schoolmaster, and that we are clean and washed white as snow by the blood of the Lamb? Sometimes I think we, we hit that wash white as snow thing so hard that it alleviates our responsibility to repent. I'm white as snow, once saved, always saved. Until you're not. Until tomorrow. Until the drive home. When sin is yet entered in again, into your mind even. And you have to confess it. You have to repent of it. Otherwise, if you go before the accuser, it will be revealed. 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 2 through 5 says, Moreover, it is required in stewards that a man be found faithful. It is required, he says, that a man be found faithful. But with me it is a very small thing that I should be judged of you, or of man's judgment. Yea, I judge not mine own self, for I know nothing by myself, yet am I not hereby justified. But he that judgeth me is the Lord. Therefore judge nothing before the time until the Lord come who both will bring to light the hidden things of darkness and will make manifest the counsels of the hearts. And then shall every man have praise of God. No hidden sin, beloved. It will be uncovered. The next portion of text, verses 36 through 42, says Jacob was wroth. We got a wroth in Jacob. We hadn't had this yet. We've got a lot of versions of Jacob that we've seen so far, but not this one. And, he, and it says he chowed with Laban. And Jacob answered and said to Laban, What is my trespass? What is my sin that thou hast so hotly pursued after me? Whereas thou hast searched all my stuff, what hast thou found of all thy household stuff? Set it here before my brethren and thy brethren, that they may judge betwixt us both. This twenty years have I been with thee. Thy ewes and thy she-goats have not cast their young, and the rams of thy flock have I not eaten. That which was torn of beasts I brought none unto thee. I bear the loss of it. Of my hand didst thou require it, whether stolen by day or stolen by night, which is a common requirement for the shepherd in the day, and we'll talk about this in a moment. Thus I was in the day the, dra the, draft cons uh, the, the drought consumed me, and the frost by night, and my sleep departed from mine eyes. Thus have I been twenty years in thy house. I served thee fourteen years for thy two daughters, and six years for thy cattle. And thou hast changed my wages ten times, except the God of my father, the God of Abraham, and the fear of Isaac had been with me. Surely thou hadst sent me away now empty. God hath seen my, mine affliction and the labor of my hands and rebuked thee yesternight. God apologized for some reason. I thought that took place before this chapter. This is the place where Jacob confesses that this is the God of Abraham, the God of his father Isaac, and his God as well. And it could be part of that revelation that made that clear unto him was the dream that was given to Laban, that his hand was stayed against Jacob. 
Because Jacob is wise enough to understand that Laban would have wanted him dead. That Laban, as he already said, would have taken his wives and his children away from him. These were the words Jacob said in the last section of text. Twenty years of pent-up anger now reveals itself from Jacob. And Jacob laid it on the line to his father-in-law. Laban was an idolater, Jacob a backslider. How could there be any agreement between them? The only redeeming thing in Jacob's angry speech is that he gave God the glory there in verse 42. That's the only thing. We are not our own avengers. We do not uh, fulfill our own revenge. We need to trust that to the Lord. Consider this part of the text. He says, That which was torn of beasts I brought not unto thee, I bear the loss of it. Of my hand didst thou require it, whether stolen by day or stolen by night. Thus I was in the day the drought, the drought consumed me, and the frost by night, and my sleep departed from mine eyes. It was customary that uh, when a shepherd brought a torn animal to his master, this was regarded as evidence that he had defended the sheep and had driven the beast away, that he had done all that he could to save it. And under these circumstances, the master typically bore the loss rather than the shepherd. Jacob, however, had borne all of the losses of Laban's flocks himself, likely replacing Laban's injured flock with his own. Uh, I love what we read there in verse 42. And, and I think it'll be more significant as we continue to go through uh, the Old Testament because we'll see that phrase over and over and over again, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. But this is the first time we really see it take hold of Jacob that it's his. Uh, it's almost a, a, a profession of faith, if you will. Now, we know that he, the, there was the, t the, the rocks and the, the dream, the ladder, and the anointing oil poured over the rocks the next day. We know that there's a significant relationship with God. We know that he's been given the blessing of his father. That signifies the promised seed will come from Jacob, who we've been tracking through this entire study. But this is the first time with his own words out loud, especially to his enemy here, which is unfortunately Laban, his father-in-law, that he owns this. Laban says unto him, God revealed this yesternight. Jacob says back, God of Abraham, the God of my father, my God revealed this to you yesternight. I think his faith was strengthened by this experience though he tried to sneak away though he tried to do a lot of this his own way God revealed his hand God revealed that he's involved it openly connects Jacob to the promised seed lineage Joseph makes reference to it Genesis 50 verse 24 God brings it to Moses in Exodus chapter 3 verse 6 where it says moreover he said I am the God of thy father the God of Abraham the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob and Moses hid his face, for he was afraid to look upon God. And from that point forward, it becomes a common part of Moses' own language. He says it over and over and over again. And as the one who brings these books together, Genesis included, he gives us the origin right here of how Jacob is tied to that title. The last portion of, of Genesis 31, and I just have a few notes on that and then we'll close, begins in verse 43. And Laban answered and said unto Jacob, These daughters are my daughters. These children are my children. These cattle are my cattle. And all that thou seest is mine. And what can I do this day unto these my daughters or unto their children? 
which they have borne. This is in response to what Jacob had just said unto him, reveal to my people, reveal to your people, what you have found here that belongs to you. Laban says it all belongs to me. Now therefore, come thou, let us make a covenant. This is Laban speaking. I and thou, and let it be for a witness between me and thee. And Jacob took a stone and set it up for a pillar. <clears throat> and Jacob said unto his brethren, gather stones. And they took stones and made an heap. And they did eat there upon the heap. And Laban called it Jagar Sahadutha. And Jacob called it Galead. And Laban said, this heap is a witness between me and thee this day. Therefore was the name of it called Gilead and Mizpah, Mizpah meaning a watchtower. We're going to come back to that in a moment. For he said, The Lord watch between me and thee, when we are absent one from another. If thou shalt afflict my daughters, or if thou shalt take otherwise beside my daughters, no man is with us. See, God is witness betwixt me and thee. And Laban said to Jacob, Behold this heap, and behold this pillar, which I have cast betwixt me and thee. This heap be witness, and this pillar be witness, that I will not pass over this heap to thee, and that thou shalt not pass over this heap and this pillar unto me for harm. The God of Abraham, the God of Nahor, the God of their father, judge betwixt us. I, that, <laughs> I don't like how that tastes. This is Laban talking here. We're, in a, we're almost in a verbal struggle between who this God belongs to between these two men. And, and I, I got more to read here, but I, I can't even contain myself. I got to point out, this is not one of those beautiful agreement situations like what Abimelech and Abraham had back in the day over the wells. Um, this is very different. This is like a line drawn in the sand. You will not cross. I will not cross. God will bear witness. This stops here. You don't come back, Laban is saying. And then he lays a claim on God, God of Abraham. Remember, Abraham is a relation to Laban as well. This would have been his uncle. The God of Nahor, the God of their father. Now, there's one God, but not all these men he's mentioning actually recognized, worshipped, or even had this God revealed unto them like Abraham did, like Isaac did, and like Jacob has. And it says, And Jacob swear by the fear of his father Isaac, then Jacob offered sacrifice upon the mount and called his brethren to eat bread. And they did eat and tarried all night in the mount. And early in the morning, Laban rose up and kissed his sons and daughters and blessed them. And Laban departed and returned unto his place. This so-called Mizpah blessing, it's actually a hymn that's found in many hymnals. I, I know it's not in the Berea from what I've seen. I don't know if it's in any of the others that we have in the building, but it's the hymn is not really a scriptural hymn. This is not a blessing place. This is not a place of, of, of uh, memorial or great rejoicing. These two men did not trust each other, and rightfully so. They set up a pillar to remind both of them that God was watching. Instead of witnessing to their friendship, as the Mizpah blessing hymn says, these stones witness to their mutual distrust of one another. Note that in verse 47, the two men did not even speak the same language. Genesis 31, 47, Laban called it a word I can't pronounce twice, and Jacob pronounced or, or called it Galead. Both names mean heap of witness or heap of testimony. Verse 52 indicates that the pillar Laban uh, erected was also a boundary marker beyond which Jacob dare not go. This is from his own claim in verse 51. Listen to verse 52 again. This heap be witness, and this pillar be witness, that I will not pass over this heap to thee, 
and that thou shalt not pass over this heap and this pillar unto me, and those last two words, for harm. It was already made clear unto Laban that, that God would not permit him to pursue Jacob if his intentions were evil anyhow. Laban lost nothing in this promise, but kind of sealed up his own protection when Jacob agreed to it that you won't come back across this line. Laban's already not allowed to harm Jacob because of what God had stated. So here we are. Jacob's 20 years of servitude were over. He still needed to go back to Bethel and make things right with God. He arrived in Haran with very little, departs here with a caravan. That's all God. That's all God. Listen to Genesis 32.5. He says, And I have oxen and asses, flocks and men servants and women servants. He didn't have any of that when he arrived. We talked when he left that dream uh, where he, he erected the, the and, and did the water anointing. When he left that place, which he's going back to momentarily, he may have had just enough to carry to get there. That's what we pointed out. And now he's loaded. Now he has 20 years worth of work. Uh, but he could have had more in 20 years. Laban took advantage of him. But he has something to show, at least at this point, that God has definitely been with him. He was essentially chased from the land of his father when he left because of Esau. And now he's essentially chased back with the door closed and locked behind him. His burnt offering here was likely a memorial unto God for finally delivering him from his servitude to Laban. Laban and his sons are not mentioned further in scriptures. He was a type picturing the covetous worldly man who knows about the God, about the one true God, who could, who could argue that, uh, that a thorough witness was not provided here by God himself, that he was indeed God. But he didn't, he didn't know him. This wasn't his God, though he liked to make claims that maybe it could be there at the end. It wasn't his God. His little G God was stolen from him. God did not fail to save this man. I want you to understand that. He did not fail to save Laban. It was simply not his intention to do so. Uh, we can write a, a fictitious story of how if God wanted to save Laban, he could have forced him to the ground and made for him to confess all of his faults, cried for days, months, years because of the wickedness that had been revealed in him. We're not going to do that. We're not going to add to scriptures here. But as we said with, with Lot, the deafening silence of him never being mentioned again in scripture, uh, him forming a, a, a boundary, I mean, that's what we do. We get too close to God. We get too close to something real. We're not willing to repent. We draw st distinct boundaries and reasons why we should not go back near that again. How many have graced those doors, heard the gospel, put on a nice face so they could have the food in the fellowship hall, and then left never to return? Be careful what boundaries you draw. Be careful what understanding you have of the idols that are in your life. Use discernment, beloved. Do we want the meat? Do we want the bones? Do we want to suffer lukewarm and cold? Or do we want to understand the passion that God the Father has for his children?